this is Martin Willis and Phyllis Gall with the Antique Auction Forum podcast. Forum podcast? Forum po- I guess that's what we're going to call it, Pat, or is it... How about the Auction Forum and podcast? The Antique Auction Forum and podcast. That's what we're calling ourselves now. Anyway, uh, welcome everyone. We have a very special guest today I'm pretty excited about. He's Manship Professor of History at Louisiana State University. Andrew Burstein. How are you doing, Andrew? Uh, I'm great. Good to be with you. Yeah, so we're really excited that you agreed to do the podcast with us. I'm a real Jefferson fan and uh, really enjoyed uh, watching you in Ken Burns' uh, film on Jefferson. Really, uh, really happy you're here today. You have a book out now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the new book uh, I've co-authored with my partner, Nancy Eisenberg, uh, who's also a professor here at LSU. And uh, it's called Madison and Jefferson. It's a dual biography of the third and fourth presidents. And it's largely uh, the story of early American politics, a lot of it being dirty politics, which mm. we don't ordinarily associate with the, uh, the glory of the founding generation. But theirs was a historic and precedent-setting partnership that is surprisingly unknown by most Americans, and yet the Madison-Jefferson partnership is what shaped the political direction of our country. Hmm. Uh, In some ways, it changed everything. Uh, How political parties compete, how we understand the language of rights, uh, social justice. And uh, Madison is privileged in the title because Madison is generally considered kind of an egghead, just a, a political philosopher, a thinker, and, uh, and, and, and Jefferson's political lieutenant, when in fact, Madison uh, not only had a raucous sense of humor, uh, uh, but he was an embittered political partisan as much as Jefferson was uh, in the, uh, uh, the fractious 1790s, the first decade of uh, life under the Constitution. And it was uh, Madison who did the most to get uh, George Washington's administration started, and Madison who uh, ended up uh, leading the charge against George Washington's administration a couple years later when uh, Secretary of the Treasury uh, Alexander Hamilton sort of took things into his own hands and tried to upset the uh, constitutional balance of power by uh, by, uh, making the executive all-powerful. So the beginning of the two-party system is uh, really the crux of Madison and Jefferson's partnership, and we deal with that, and uh, we also do our best to humanize uh, both Madison and Jefferson. Mm. Uh, I've written two books about Jefferson before, so the excitement in doing this was in finding out that Madison is much more than just the brainy uh, no co-author of the Federalist Papers or the so-called father of the Constitution, mm-hmm. um, but in fact a, a very interesting political character. So that that's uh, more or less what we do in this book. Great, great. Now, one thing that uh, kind of shocked me in the whole uh, reading about Jefferson, and he was being such a sensitive man and everything, but when uh, Hamilton attacked him, he, he attacked right back with the uh, newspaper and the, uh, the dirty politics I was pretty amazed by that. Yes, well, uh, and this involves Madison uh, integrally because the newspaper wars that took place at this time, uh, Jefferson 
stayed kind of uh, uh, secret behind the scenes. He wouldn't write directly for the newspapers. Mm. But Madison was, uh, was out front. Uh, everyone knew where he stood. And even though they used pseudonyms, because that was the order of the day, he authored some of the sharpest, most biting um, <laughs> political uh, editorials in the newspaper that he and Jefferson uh, arranged to have formed to compete with the pro-administration newspaper, which had been the only newspaper. This is in Philadelphia when it was the national capital. It's not by coincidence that the editor of that Madisonian, Jeffersonian newspaper was Madison's college roommate at Princeton, a guy by the name of Philip Furneaux, who uh, was uh, nationally known as a patriotic poet. So the uh, the story of the newspapers is, is in, uh, a very important theme in uh, Madison and Jefferson hmm. because uh, I, I would say that the, the book wouldn't have uh, uh, gone very far if it wasn't for the um, really wild, colorful language that they used in, in attacking one another, both sides used in attacking one another. And, th and in this sense, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will be surprised to find out that uh, the biting satire and the name-calling... Uh, will will resonate today. It's uh, uh, it, it shows that the founding generation that they didn't just sit around with their you know, nice periwigs and their quill pens, um, uh, thinking uh, you know uh, enlightened thoughts. They spent a lot of time um, in 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 the Grub Street tradition of uh, you know using their pens to combat one another, standing up on the uh, the, the floor of Congress. Uh, you know, sometimes wielding canes and fireplace tongs and, and wow. having brawls. I mean, uh, we don't go that far in Congress today, but uh, it's just it's just nasty words on the television. Uh, but uh, back then, um, it got physical, and uh, yeah. we know of the most famous duel that was fought, which was uh, Hamilton yeah. um, and Aaron Burr. But uh, it, it was uh, certainly uh, by no means the only political duel that was fought at that time. Sure, sure. I've, I've heard of uh, stories about that. Now, in the, let's just talk about in the beginning, what sparked your interest in becoming a historian? And uh, what made you choose uh, Jefferson as your, your subject of study and writings? Well, uh, it's kind of a, a, an unconventional uh, way of uh, becoming a Thomas Jefferson scholar. Uh, I majored in college uh, in uh, Chinese language and history. And I, That's um, far off. <laughs> I learned uh, Chinese, and I spent a number of years going back and forth to China um, with a master's degree in uh, in Chinese um, history and culture and politics. Wow. Um, so I always had a love for language, mm. and uh, I found that when uh, I decided that business uh, wasn't really for me, and that I missed the conversation that takes place on the college campus, and I went back for my PhD. It was in early American history, and it was Thomas Jefferson who drew me in because of his, you know, uh, extraordinary uh, ability to uh, reach deep with the English language, and he stands out in his time in the 18th century, not just as a uh, visionary or as a, a man steeped in the, 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 uh, the Enlightenment, but uh, as someone who knew how to craft uh, the English language, American English, and um, use it to promote harmony and affection and these other enlightenment ideals. So 
um, in a sense, I traded in Chairman Mao for Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, speaking of enlightenment, um, that's a term I've heard. I don't know very little about it. Is there a real quick uh, description you can give of what enlightenment means or meant? Yeah, there there are different. Uh, I mean, it, it, one of the ways in which this is talked about is also the age of reason, which is another phrase I'm, I'm sure you and, and listeners would have uh, heard of. And uh, in this period, in the late 18th century, the the adoration of science and reason grew in opposition to the power of uh, the church. And hmm. uh, Madison and Jefferson spent their first years as political partners, uh, as activists for uh, freedom of conscience, uh, separation of church and state, it became uh, with the First Amendment to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And this was a direct outgrowth of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment learning. And there's a, there's a European Enlightenment, a Scottish Enlightenment, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, both of which uh, had a, a strong impact on the American founders. Uh, it taught them not only to um, believe in the light of the mind as opposed to pure faith, uh, and acceptance of a hierarchy, acceptance of a patriarchy, acceptance of a uh, uh, you know a ministerial elite. Um, it really, in its American form, was the catalyst for what we know as political democracy. So it's an intellectual movement with political ramifications in America. Hmm. Uh, we have a we have a uh, Skype caller on the line here in just a second. Um, did that fizzle out? Well, um, in the 19th century, there was sort of a marriage between the Enlightenment was never ne- Enlightenment was never rejected, but there came to be a kind of uh, confluence where uh, the the, the science worshipping Enlightenment met a um, resurrected, <laughs> you'll pardon that term, world of faith where uh, evangelicals became uh, more widely um, accepted, dispersed uh, with the democratization of America. So in the 1820s and 30s, you have itinerant ministers um, uh, reaching deep and producing um, a resurgence of the the world of faith um, so that the two coexisted uh, side by side, mm-hmm. uh, and not uh, not greatly contradicting one another. You know, you have the transcendentalist movement and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, mm-hmm. uh, which was a combination of this. Um, uh, referring back to the 18th century Enlightenment and accepting a more spiritual uh, individual personality. Mm-hmm. Just one last question: Do you yeah. think the Enlightenment's I mean, when we're talking about men, you know, embracing separation of church and state, do you think that applied more to men who were highly educated, or was the average layman still very religious? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it is primarily a um, a movement of uh, the intellectual elite, and uh, Madison especially, Jefferson less so, uh, was very skeptical about uh, granting to mo- democracy too widely, too quickly, because he was uh, suspicious 
of the lack of uh, education or lack of foresight among those in state legislatures who he thought needed guidance from above. Uh, initially, um, and few people know this, in the Constitutional Convention, Madison wanted the U.S. Senate to have a kind of um, censoring role over the state legislatures that they could veto the state legisl uh, uh, legislation because this enlightened thinker felt that those people um, who were not as literate um, would be more easily seduced by the kind of oratory that you might find in a, in a local church mm -hmm. that at that time, and we have to understand that uh, we're talking about a very different world. You know, the, the largest city in America had about 30,000 people. Mm. Um, people were dispersed across um, uh, an agrarian landscape. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the simple answer to, to your question, Phyllis, is that um, uh, people were of religious in this country. They didn't stop being religious, mm -hmm. but they saw um, religious community in social terms, and it was less politically divisive than it's come to be in, in recent years. Mm -hmm. All right, we have John Logan from Rhode Island on Skype. How you doing, John? Pretty well. Yourself, Marty? I'm doing great. You're on with uh, Professor uh, Burstein. You have some questions, yes? Yeah, yeah, uh, pretty uh, interesting person to get to ask these questions because I myself am very interested in Jefferson. Um, I guess, uh, you know, given given last night's events, uh, I'm curious what you think about um, the Jeffersonian tradition as it as it stands in America right now. Is it alive and well? Is it somewhat forgotten? Is it seeing a resurgence? Yeah, I guess we could start there. Uh, well, it's it's hard to answer that question in the sense that, uh, as I just finished saying, the world that Jefferson lived in was so different from ours. And, you know, he had no intention of legislating for the future. In fact, he believed that every generation uh, had to reinvent itself, and he was even in favor of, uh, and, and this was someplace where he and Madison disagreed vehemently, Jefferson was in favor of uh, renegotiating constitutions um, every generation. Hmm. And uh, so in that sense, you know, Jefferson is uh, very open to change, um, believing that his generation should not enforce its beliefs on future generations. So when you say uh, the Jeffersonian message, you know, is it alive today? I think that the best Thomas Jefferson is alive today. And that's the Jefferson who spoke to uh, the potential, the educability of, of people. He believed that no matter what you were born as, and it was kind of a novel idea at the time, no matter what you were born as, you had an opportunity. And living in this republic, you had a right to seek to rise, uh, to become something. Just because you were born uh, the son of a tavern keeper or a cobbler didn't mean that you would be an uneducated artisan all your life. Jefferson certainly believed in meritocracy, um, and uh, uh, some of his protégés uh, in his later years were people who had particular spark, particular talent, mm. self-educated, um, 
and uh, he believed that they could be leaders. So that's, in my uh, view anyway, uh, the best Thomas Jefferson and the one who does still speak to us today. So uh, I guess when, when I say the Jeffersonian tradition, uh, I, I guess I, I kind of take a, I'm looking more into the foreign policy realm in, in, in uh, I should have specified that, so far as uh, trading with people to achieve political ends, talking with them, as opposed to uh, going abroad to force them to do things, having a, a, <laughs> a trade relations and, and diplomatic relations over um, forceful relations. Uh, I, I was reading an interview of yours on PBS.org. You're talking about how he's a great friend, a great communicator. He wanted to uh, flesh out controversial ideas instead of just shut down debate. Um, okay. So, in, in that regards, uh, do we have a healthy republic today, or do we have kind of the democracy that he feared, um, where where uh, we we don't have a constitutional rule of law and, and a, a legislature that respects different opinions? Well, I I'll tell you, John, uh, I have what's probably a pretty surprising answer to that, and that's that uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, for that matter who was his Secretary of State when Jefferson was president, they were ardent expansionists, and the word empire didn't have a bad connotation. They referred to this potential of the United States as an empire for liberty, and they did believe in uh, wresting all of the land that became the continental U.S. Uh, They saw an opportunity when Spain was weak, the Spanish possession, the Floridas, as they were then known, East and West Florida, They looked for ways to take advantage of a weakened uh, Spanish control of uh, the U.S. South. They looked to Texas and Mexico as possible additions. And uh, up and through the Civil War, Americans uh, in the Jeffersonian, Madisonian tradition believed that we should invade Canada. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so, you know, we rewrite history all the time. And... um, uh, although Thomas Jefferson was a very effective diplomat when he was the U.S. ambassador to Spain uh, to uh, France in the five years leading up to the French Revolution, um, and was uh, integrally involved with the Marquis de Lafayette in scripting that revolution so that it favored the liberal uh, nobility, mm-hmm. um, Jefferson was—I mean, he—he was. He and Madison were behind the first uh, war that Americans fought with uh, with Islamic nations, the, the Barbary Wars, uh, in, in the first years of the 19th century. So um, they were expansionists, and uh, they saw America on the world stage as, uh, you know, the, the seed of a great empire. We were just an, an infant empire, he, he called it. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, they, they wanted America to grow and expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw also that you, you've written on Andrew Jackson, and uh, I was interested to see if you could uh, tie something together for me. Uh, for me, an important issue is the, our nation's money supply, and that's something that Jackson took on, you know, took head on. The, the bank, what was it called? The, the bank he shut the down? National Bank. Right, so he set down, shut down our first central bank and um, because it was responsible for a lot of bad. Uh, but Jefferson talked about a similar issue when he talked about banking institutions being more powerful than standing armies, and uh, he, he himself was there uh, fighting for a sound currency system. So 
away from their presidencies and their actions today uh, in regards to having an economy based on a sound monetary system? Well, you, you'll notice that I'm very reluctant to make parallels between then and now. Uh, it was, there's a, such a different world, and especially, I mean, the pre-industrial world, you know, you, you can't consider capitalism along the same lines as we do now. Um, Jefferson believed that America should not consolidate power, and that meant economic power as well, in a centralized um, banking system, particularly one like the, the Bank of the United States, the, the, the National Bank, which at that time... Uh, was, uh, I think, one-third of it was uh, U.S. federal funds, and the balance was in private hands. So those private individuals on the board of the bank exercised a lot of power, and Jefferson was skeptical of any entity that consolidated too much power, political or economic. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to um, uh, minimize uh, the power of, of the bankers, and he didn't trust them, and Andrew Jackson was the same way. Um, the sort of uh, popular message that, that, they, that they promoted was uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the bank produced uh, uh, tyranny and uh, could ruin the republic. Madison, on the other hand, when he was president, recognized that he needed the bank, a strong bank, uh, and even deficit spending in order to fight the War of 1812. Jefferson continued um, to believe that we should, you know, raise money on a small scale. He wanted to keep America small. He wanted it to be expanding and growing and for family farms to emerge across, across the continent. Um, and he was very suspicious of, you know, too many people in any one place, like cities. Uh, he saw kind of the corruption growing from the banking system, growing from overpopulation, and that America would become kind of uh, uh, unbalanced in, in the way that, that the city of London uh, or, or other places in Europe that he saw were. So uh, his world was uh, uh, just so different, um, and he could not possibly have anticipated the, the exponential growth that took place in banking and in uh, capitalist investment. So it's really, really hard to draw any comparison to today. Right. And uh, the last question I have is in regards to, you were talking about he's an agrarian, uh, he believed in strong agriculture, and he made very strong remarks to that effect. I, I know one where, I mean, it's funny, I was at the Smithsonian uh, Museum of Agriculture, and, and mi missing from the, their museum is totally devoid any mention of the, our nation's major cash crop, the hemp plant. And that just, it's just not even there in our history books. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson said that that plant was essential to our, our nation's prosperity. Um, what kind of insight did he have into you know, how an agrarian economy was so, it just made sense with, with where our country was situated geographically? Okay, well, um, uh, you know, he, he believed, I mean, the, the hemp thing can be blown out of proportion. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that important to the, to the early U.S. economy. But uh, uh, he was in favor of what was called homespun, which is that uh, uh, Americans who produced on a small scale in the family and in, in small uh, communities um, would uh, keep this Republican ideal alive. And so he didn't like the ideas of big factories and um, 
you know, large institutions and uh, spoke instead of uh, a quietly expanding agrarian nation. He, uh, he wrote that farmers uh, uh, were, were the most ethical, honest, humane uh, people on the face of the earth. He called them God's chosen people, if ever God had a chosen people. So that's why we associate, why scholars associate Jefferson with this agrarian ideal. He believed in the yeoman farmer as the future uh, of America, somebody who would, you know, put put his plow down at the end of the day and, and sit under an oak tree and read Homer in the original Greek. I mean, that was his vision. <laughs> he was yeah. turning over in his grave with all the urbanization now. <laughs> yeah, what was the saying? He said he thought it would take 50 generations to fill up the Louisiana Purchase or something like that from up to the West? Yes, Jeff- Yes, Jefferson wrote uh, in hyperbole. He, he thought it would take, I think he said, what it was, a thousand generations uh, to populate the United States. Um, uh, he had no idea. He did not foresee the transcontinental railroad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Hey, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Those thank were great you, questions. Yeah, thanks, thanks for John. Me. All right. Okay, so now we're uh, moving on here. For our listeners, um, Andrew, I just wanted to say a, a lot of people are really avid collectors of Thomas Jefferson letters. I was looking online, and some have gone into the six figures. Um, I was lucky enough to have a number of Jefferson letters through my auction career, and uh, always enjoyed reading. And actually, it's a thrill for me to hold a Thomas Jefferson letter in my hand. You know, just to know that he actually ha- held it in his hand and wrote uh, one time. It, it really, to me, I love that kind of thing. Um, he produced such a large body of work. Does anyone have any idea approximately how many letters are out there in, uh, well, we can't say private hands, but say public? Yeah, um, I can give you a, a pretty reliable figure on that. Uh, there, he wrote in his lifetime approximately somewhere between 16 and 18,000 letters. <laughs> oh, um, and he kept at Monticello, a 656-page, what's called Summary Journal of Letters, in which he noted every letter sent and every letter received, along with the name of the person who he sent it to or received it from, and sometimes he'd scratch in a little uh, 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 notation of the subject of the letter. So... um, for Jefferson, letter writing was essential to his day and also a way of uh, expressing his inner thoughts and feelings and getting things off his chest. And uh, that was the subject of my first book, really, um, the, his, where he stood in the Republic of Letters or the culture of letter writing. And I've, like you, I've, I've had opportunities to hold in my hands these precious letters uh, that he's written, and uh, either uh, at the University of Virginia Special Collections, which has a, a, a nice uh, repository, um, the Library of Congress, of course. I, I uh, actually held the uh, his first draft of his first inaugural message, which is mm. probably the most eloquent of any uh, inaugural message by any president, 1801. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know how many uh, of, of Jefferson's letters are in private hands. I think that 
some of these would, would date to 19th century collectors or people who knew the Jefferson family personally and had, like, had some Virginia connections to them. But um, uh, you would be in a better position than I to, uh, uh, to connect to uh, how many people are, are uh, holding on to or, or willing to sell them. I think uh, as a scholar, what I get to see are the ones that are very carefully maintained in, mm-hmm. uh, in government or uh, university archives. Mm-hmm. Professor, did you ever, I know you studied modern Chinese history, did you ever study Qing or Ming dynasty history? Yes, uh, I, I was interested in, uh, the, the, what I did my master's thesis on was uh, how China's expansion west, and this is kind of uh, why I have a comparable interest in, in Jeffersonian uh, expansion west, uh, how uh, the Ming, well, not the Ming, really, because they were more traditional and isolationist, but the, the Qing dynasty and uh, the early 20th century, um, uh, how China dealt with the national minorities mm-hmm. uh, along the Inter-Asian frontier with mm-hmm. uh, with Russia. Uh, they, they had a similar paternalism to, to the way in which the Americans uh, looked at the, the Indians. I mean, we were talking about an, uh, a nomadic peoples in, in, in both cases, mm-hmm. and this belief that, uh, you know, the, the in a sense, uh, the great father was in Beijing, or the mm-hmm. great father was in Washington. Mm-hmm. So it, there is, there, there are some interesting yeah. parallels, actually, yeah. between uh, American and Chinese history. I keep thinking about Chinese history, actually, through all of this, all this whole podcast. But one thing that I was thinking about is, in ter- Thomas Jefferson was so prolific with letters, and also if you look at um, Qing and Ming, or p- perhaps not until very late Ming, but Qing Dynasty emperors, um, that's when they really started writing to their governors. Oh, yeah. Well, Chinese, I love Chinese calligraphy, and um, I made kind of a fractured attempt to master it myself. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, it is that love of language, and particularly because uh, the Chinese language is so expressive. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there are ideas contained in each character. Uh, it's not just an alphabet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard for Westerners to understand yeah. uh, when you say something like that, just how, uh, you know, as well as Jefferson wrote, it, there's no poetry. There's poetry contained in his phrasing, mm-hmm. but... In, with the Chinese ideographs, there's poetry contained right there in, yeah. in you know, in the structure of the language itself. Yeah. Um, it's really hard and, to translate. Uh, uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, that has a lot to do with why Jefferson appeals. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even though he never wrote poetry per se, there is a kind of, uh, well, he writes to have an effect. And, and whereas most Americans of his generation wrote to either simply convey information or to have a, uh, make a political statement, Jefferson made his political statements as, you know, the same way in his private letters, he appealed on such a heartfelt level. Uh, and this is why he resonates today. You know, why is it that Jefferson's letters are so collectible? I think it's because uh, uh, he, there, there is a universal sense of uh, 
romance with with the written word that transcends generation and there's really nobody from his time that captures that possibility the way Jefferson did and let me just I have something before me here so let me just read this to you quickly hmm. this is um, his head and heart letter that he's writing oh, yes. in October of 1786 to Mariah Cosway who is an Anglo-Italian artist mm-hmm. Uh, he's close to in Paris. They go to the theater together. Uh, she's unhappily married. Uh, she was, wasn't she married to a miniaturist, and he was uh, older than her, and he was, uh, he was a, quite a problem uh, yeah. person. Yes. Right. That's, that's the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so here's Jefferson writing to her, which is, it's, it's a letter on friendship. Um, and and he's, what he's telling her is that uh, you know, when you, when you care about someone, you run the risk of losing them, and then your heart will be broken. Uh, uh, but, you know, he, it's a dialogue between his head and the heart, mm-hmm. and his heart, and, and the, the head is saying, well, don't take chances, and the heart is saying, yes, take chances. So here's his heart uh, speaking for him. Mm-hmm. Let the gloomy monk sequestered from the world Seek unsocial pleasures in the bottom of his cell. Let the sublimated philosopher grasp visionary happiness while pursuing phantoms dressed in the garb of truth. Their supreme wisdom is supreme folly, and they mistake for happiness the mere absence of pain. Had they ever felt the solid pleasure of one generous spasm of the heart, they would exchange for it all the frigid speculations of their lives. So, you know, this... I mean, he's able to communicate in a way that transcends time. And Mm -hmm. this is what I think makes Jefferson so remarkable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Has there been a president since then who's been, who who has his letters or his writings cataloged? Uh, Yeah, actually, uh, before the invention of email, um, (laughs) everybody retained their letters. And uh, if you go to a university library, you'll find, uh, I mean, nobody, you know, you are Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln Mm -hmm. was an effective letter writer. He could tug at the heartstrings. But there's really uh, no one between Jefferson and Lincoln who tugs at the American heartstrings. And I Mm -hmm. think that's because the two of them had an ability to communicate um, uh, with the written word in a way that, uh, still speaks to us. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, I've read, you know, the collective the letters of Dwight Eisenhower and Franklin Roosevelt, and mm-hmm. you know, even Roosevelt doesn't doesn't come close to mm-hmm. what the uh, 19th century letter writers were able to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about uh, Miss Causeway, and did they stay in touch in later years? Yes, they did stay in touch um, periodically. One or the other would write a letter, and they were, you know, they were very uh, proper letters, nothing mm-hmm. that Jefferson had to worry about, mm-hmm. uh, what would happen if it was intercepted uh, in the mails. Sure. Um, they, they moved from a kind of hot and heavy flirtation in France um, to this uh, kind of uh, old friend's um, uh, nostalgia. Mm. And their letters, uh, which you, know, you could find uh, just by going to the Library of Congress website, um, LLC.gov, and uh, remember, uh, slash American Memory, uh, and you can find in Jefferson's letters, you can look at the digitized original, and you can just 
uh, plug in the keyword Mariah Causeway, mm. uh, and you'd find every letter that uh, uh, that the government oh. has that um, uh, passed between the two of them. Thank you so much, Andrew. We're going to end this as part one of your interview, and we'll be back to you. So this is Martin Willis. And Phyllis Gall. With Professor Andrew Burstein, and we're signing off.